Shanna Paxton. And I'm Jeff Gibson. And we are The, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of The Gibson Review, my husband's blog, you know. In each episode, we celebrate our love of movies by kicking off the week in review what movies and TV shows we have been watching since the last episode. There's been a few. Moving on to the main event, a main review or topic of discussion. And then we finish off with film faves, our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. There's a lot of T's in there. All right. So in this episode, our main event will be a review of the much anticipated No Time to Die. This is Daniel Craig's final James Bond movie, and we have to say goodbye to the blue eyes. Then, in Film Faves, we'll be counting down our favorite opening title sequences. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, now it's time for the main event in our review of No Time to Die. Why would I betray you? We all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. The world is arming faster than we can respond. Where's 007? I need a favor, brother. You're the only one I trust for this. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. You were double O. Two years. So stay in your lane. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. The one that works. I thought you two would get along. Name? Bond. James Bond. So you're not dead. Hello, Q. I've missed you. It's the most valuable asset this country has. If you feel yourself losing control, I'm not going to lose. Control. James, you gave up everything for her. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. What is it? I don't know what this is. James Bond. License to kill. History of violence. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. Mine will survive long after I'm gone. History isn't kind to men who play God. And that was from the trailer, No Time to Die. When we review a film, what we typically like to do first is focus on what was good. What's the positives about this movie? What did we like? Where's the strength? Is there strength? Was there any pumping involved with weights? Then we move on to the bad. What got ignored? What didn't get enough writing prep? Whatever. What sucked about it? Then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad. We give it a score and move on to the spoilers section and give our final thoughts in there. 
Jeff, you're really familiar with the James Bond franchise. I mean, you're the kind of person that wouldn't mind going to buy the the Costco James Bond set at Christmas time. Well, I've never done that. <laughs> well, but... it's not finished, is it? <laughs> so it seems a little bit of a... Well, they've always released... Uh, every few years, they release a new box set mm-hmm. of them in various sets. And, and they're notorious for making sure one of the shitty ones is in that particular set you <laughs> know get rid of this somehow guys yeah exactly so people don't just pick the cream of the crop so first of all i, I want to put out there that we are probably going to have a, a short no non-spoiler section here and most of our talk will probably be spoilers because the trailers don't give away a lot and there's a lot to talk about in this mm. uh even the plot synopsis for No Time to Die, which is that James Bond, since Spectre from a few years ago, he's left active service. But, of course, his piece is short-lived. When Even this is not accurate on IMDb. There's more than that happens that's on here. Things get disrupted, let's say. And it's directed, this film is directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who actually took over duties from Danny Boyle. Originally, Danny Boyle was going to direct this film. Kerry Fukunaga ended up doing it instead. And if you're not familiar, Kerry Fukunaga has also directed such things as Beast of No Nation. He did the first season of True Detective. Jane Eyre from uh, several years back. So very established, critically acclaimed director, it also stars Ana de Armas, Rami Malek, Lea Sadu from Spectre, Lashana Lynch, uh, Rafe Fiennes, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Roy Kinnear, Jeffrey Wright, Billy Magnuson, and Christoph Waltz. I think that's a great way to approach this. There, there are so many spoilers in here, and it almost feels like, you know, I know this is Daniel Craig's last one, but it it also feels like we're kind of closing something particularly here, Mm. something in particular. So what is your experience with James Bond? So, I I mean, I grew up with James Bond, right? Like the Bond movies have been going on since the early sixties. And I grew up uh, as a child at the tail end of the Roger Moore years, Timothy Dalton was probably the first Bond I was cognitively aware of. And then, you know, the Pierce Brosnan years and so on and so forth. P- James Bond used to have marathons. I don't know if they still do on TBS very often. Mm-hmm. So it was on basic cable a lot. And at one point I actually went through and watched every single James Bond movie from front to back, I don't know. Maybe that was pre-Casino Royale I did that all the way through all the Pierce Brosnan years. And so and I want to redo that. I want to do that again and kind of like create a feature on the Gibson Review blog where I review them all, rank them all. I know that there are certain elements that make up a James Bond movie. Okay. Tell us about that. So you have the pre-title sequence. Usually that includes some incredible stunts. You have the opening title sequence that has um, a different theme with every movie. And it usually has a certain type of visual. Uh, Often, historically, those visuals involve uh, women or uh, what do you call them? 
Profiles? Like, pro, pro, uh, silhouettes. Silhouettes. Of Often women. silhouettes. Yes. Yeah. As well as imagery that relates to the themes of that particular entry. Usually weaponry. Often weaponry. Sometimes uh, other things. And then there's James Bond himself. He is usually A. He's got a cold-blooded killer side to him that's emotionally detached. He's emo- always emotionally detached from women with uh, like maybe three or four exceptions in his entire history. And he does what he needs to do to accomplish the missions. Sometimes that includes run-ins with women, sexually and otherwise. And oh, and he loves his martinis, shaken, not stirred. Mm. You know, he has certain, these gadgets from There's certain Q. beats that'll get hit each James Bond movie. Yes. And- o- yes. Often Q will be his gadget guy and there'll be mm-hmm. a scene where Q's tell, you know, hooking him up. <laughs> or telling him not to touch something. <laughs> yes, yes, very good. He always has a briefing from M, who's the head of his organization. And you always have a main bad guy, mm-hmm. sometimes more interesting than others. Mm-hmm. And often that main bad guy will have a henchman with some interesting characteristic. So these are the the basic skeletal elements of what you can typically expect, as well as, of course, amazing action from a James Bond uh, movie. I'm not as well versed as other people out there. You know, friend of the show, Alan Gilchrist, who was very informative about martial arts movies. He's also very informative and kind of encyclopedic about Bond movies and and he could speak to other elements that I couldn't as well as some of the elements of the history of it but this is kind of my familiarity I grew up with this this was the primary action franchise of the past 40 years how well do you think Daniel Craig portrayed James Bond because obviously there's been James Bond is like one, like Batman. He never ages. And what's interesting about James Bond compared to Batman is James Bond will enter new ages. And it's like, he's like Bart Simpson. He's never going to die. And he's always here. And he's always going to be the same guy, you know? So what did you think of Daniel Craig's portrayal? Well, what's interesting with Daniel Craig's run is it's very different from everyone else's in that his is the first one that's serialized and has an arc. With Casino Royale, what they essentially did, what Martin Campbell essentially did, is they not only utilized the born identity influence that was happening around that time of grounding James Bond, who had gotten quite fantastical again during the Brosnan years and really over the top and kind of terrible and ridiculous and decided to go swing the other direction and ground him. But also they essentially kind of rebooted the series by saying from the start, okay, so this is how James Bond came to be the character you know and love and have loved all these years. Casino Royale was supposed to be the first entry of that progression. Mm. And I felt like Skyfall was the, the, the culmination of, of that journey of him being fully the character you know and mm. love. And then we've had Spectre, which was supposed to introduce, reintroduce his original main bad guy organization uh, headed by Blofeld which Christoph Waltz uh, played. So 
The interesting thing, though, about Daniel Craig's run is he's been very, his movies have been very hit and miss. It's like every other movie has been really good. And the question was, you know, like Casino Royale was one of the best James Bond movies. Quantum of Solace, I barely remember that movie. Mm. Very forgettable. Couldn't even tell you who the villain is. Skyfall, also one of the best. Had one of the best theme songs, too. Spectre, crushingly disappointing with everything that it had set up, right? Yeah, yeah. Question was, was No Time to Die going to repeat that pattern and also be uh, really good and a great way for him to go out on, which we will discuss, but... Yeah. You know, this was one of those pandemic movies that were very interesting. They didn't say, I, I like if I recall correctly, they didn't say, oh, we'll wait for summer. Oh, we'll wait for fall. Oh, we'll wait for Christmas. They kind of just said, we're not releasing it until we're ready. If I remember correctly. Uh, I it might have say... had, it might have had a, we'll wait for Christmas, but yeah. I don't think anything beyond or before that i think that's closer to accurate is they had a uh, they bumped it to maybe the fall or november i want to say november period but then they bumped it again and they were very they were very prepared they weren't like oh we're gonna wait a month before yeah or something like that but with that in mind like how well or how not so well do you think this would have played you know during pandemic I think that's a question we have to talk about in spoilers for okay. very like specific reasons having to do with the story. Well, I hope that makes people want to watch the movie because I think that that is a very interesting element about yeah. this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say just broadly, the movie definitely play, would have played differently. had It, it mm-hmm. was originally going to, under Danny Boyle's direction, it was aiming for a 2019 Released, then Carrie Fukunaga took over, and so it kind of got bumped to uh, April of 2020. And I think had the movie been released in a non-COVID world, it would play very differently than it does in a COVID world. Yeah. And we can talk more about that later. Yeah. All right. So what did you like about this one? You know, I... Did not realize until I was in it how much I was excited and and thrilled to be seeing a James Bond movie in the theater again. I was I mean, I was just like chowing down the popcorn <laughs> before even the opening title sequence came on. You were so funny. You were like rocking back and forth with excitement. Yeah. Yeah. I was totally digging, digging it. I was in. And it, yeah, I, I, there's a lot that's good about this movie. I, I, there's the villain by Rami, Rami Malek. Um, his performance is really great. He gets a little bit back to the idea of the uh, interesting and different villain. Um, maybe that villain has he's, he's a memorable villain, is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, some of the best villains in Bond's history are memorable villains. He does, and he has a henchman as well who kind of gets closer to that as well, having a characteristic. He's not one of the best. I mean, we're not talking odd job or Jaws level here, but he's a fairly decent. I don't even know if he has any very many spoken words of dialogue. He might have like maybe a quarter page total of spoken dialogue. The henchman in this movie, but he's he's uh, he's he's up there. He's he's not bad. 
The opening tile sequence is pretty good. The pre-tile sequence does things that we really haven't seen before. It's also an extended one. I feel like this pre-tile sequence is at least 10 minutes long. It's, of course, serialized from, you know, like, you need to see Spectre before you see this movie. Like, you really will feel like you're missing out on a lot of information if you haven't seen Spectre. And that's unique to most James Bond movies where they're usually episodic and self-contained movies. Mm. I think that this is a, a good one, a solid one for Daniel Craig to have gone out on. I mean, this is not a die another day situation. A lot of people also hate Moore's last film, A View to Kill. I don't remember that one very well, but it's not that. Uh, it's not a Diamonds Are Forever, which was uh, Connery's last Bond movie, which was not good. It was very silly. So I think this is one of the few ones where someone went out on a high note. And I'm very relieved to see that. Excellent. You know, obviously we can't probably go into too much more. Was there anything that you didn't like about the film that wouldn't be spoilery? Okay, so there's a couple things. First of all, I this is not, I did not hear Billie Eilish's theme song to the movie beforehand, and I was really underwhelmed by it. It did not have a very, like, hmm. I don't know how to describe the characteristics of a solid James Bond theme like Goldfinger or Skyfall or even World is Not Enough, but there is something about, or Goldeneye also, about what makes uh, a song sound, first of all, like a James Bond theme Mm. and also be a memorable one. And I didn't think that Billie Eilish's song hit those marks. So I was a little disappointed in that. There are a couple new characters in this movie. And I will say Ana de Armas as Palmova is awesome. And thing, and she goes in a direction I didn't expect because she's kind of set up a particular way. And I think I know what's going to happen. Mm. Didn't happen. And and also not enough of her, mm-hmm. I will mm-hmm. say. So that's the real like thing about her character is there's not enough of her. I would have loved to have seen more of her. Lashana Lynch. She's in the movie in in a, in a playing a role that I will talk about in spoilers. I think she is very strong. I think she has certain characteristics about her that are spot on, but I'm not sure that the script gives her enough to like really love mm. and really want to see more of. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, I can clarify later. If not, but those are those are kind of um, a little bit of, of weaknesses that I had. Uh, was there anything else? You know, the whole central relationship really depends on you buying the relationship and really caring about the relationship. Inspector, that bit with Leia Sado as Madeline Swan, I was kind of like level with it i wasn't down on the relationship but i also wasn't in love with the relationship mm-hmm. you know i was just kind of okay this is the relationship kind of thing <laughs> if that makes sense well it's it's james bond he, the, there is this whole established history of there isn't usually a relationship that lasts longer than a movie 
Right. So I think this is only the second one to have appeared in two movies, mm. I believe. And I haven't seen On Her Majesty's Secret Service in a really long time. I I can't remember. Someone can correct me if it's that character that was in two movies or if it was the character from The Spy Who Loved Me that was in two movies. Um, I don't remember those. I'd have to rewatch them to see, okay, do I care more about those relationships than I do Madeline Swan mm-hmm. or not? Now, these we haven't even talked about your history. You haven't, you're not that familiar with most of the series, right? You know, James Bond does not make a feminist like me happy. So, <laughs> you know, when you're slap, when I think the world of Sean Connery and then I see him slapping a woman for no good reason, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm done. I think I'm good. Valid. So, and, you know, James Bond as a whole is, is a fairly ridiculous, unhelpful portrayal of masculinity. So, except when he wears a bathing suit, like, that's fine. That's just fine. <laughs> Except when you're able to objectify him. <laughs> when I have a turn to do that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, my exposure to James Bond was, we're a movie family, and we went to the movies. It was a new movie house, if I recall correctly, and it was one of those really big rooms, and I think I was, well, how old was I when Goldeneye came out? Like eight or ten? Let's see. Uh, you were eight-ish. Okay. So for me, it was like, oh, good. I get to go with my family to the movies. And we got this really special reusable popcorn container, which wasn't really a thing mm. growing up. So I, w- I was happy walking into the movie. <laughs> it was very exciting for me. And then it felt like when my parents took us to that movie, it felt like I had leveled up in movie Uh, world yeah yeah because i was like oh this is exciting yeah what is that i don't understand what that is but okay this is cool because of the sex and the violence yeah the the violence i totally understood you know which is a little why but you know the sex wasn't understood at all it was like oh they like each other that's nice munch munch so it was very exciting for me this massive screen teeny tiny person munching on popcorn watching all this action big quite a fan of Pierce Brosnan. He plays really well in South Africa, Mm. at least while I was growing up. And so for me, it was, it was a fun experience with my family Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a bad movie and it was a great song. I mean, Pierce Brosnan plays well, but so does Tina Turner in South Africa. She is huge. Mm. So hearing her song and seeing all this artistic movement with the opening title sequence was really interesting Mm -hmm. to, to me. I think I've always been a visual person and one of the first projects they have you do in art school where I went is you learn about radiating out and radiating in and to the sides with different graphic, which is definitely a great example of learning about that is the James Bond opening title sequences. So that's my history. So was that the only Bond movie you had ever seen? That's the only one I love. That's the only one I care to ever watch again and... The rest of his weren't that good. Brosnan. To me, yeah. Okay. Had you seen any others? Probably a few with you until I said no. Okay. I, I think you and I watched like maybe Dr. No or from Russia with Love or something like that. Maybe Goldfinger. But had you seen the Craig movies? I think you and I did watch that at home. And maybe we watched Spectre. 
in theater. We saw Spectre. Yeah, we did see Spectre yeah. in theater. It's a matter of whether or not you saw Skyfall. And or I, I find that I do like Daniel Craig as James Bond. I'm okay. quite fond of it. I'm perfectly happy okay. watching his blue eyes. So mostly you're fairly detached from the series. Mm-hmm. You're not. You wouldn't call yourself a fan of the series. No. What was good about this movie for you? This was. This is probably going to knock out Goldeneye for me. I very much like this movie. I thought the action was fantastic. I thought the concept of what they were dealing with, what they had to save the world from was awesome and a little scary given our our climate nowadays. I thought that the performances were pretty good and kind of this exhaustion that happens with M is interesting. Hmm. You know, he's kind of, you can tell he's kind of done doing this. Um, and done hmm. with, you know, any failures he's committed, but also done with, like, talking to different people. It's very interesting watching him. Hmm. But a- as we've said, I'm kind of detached. I'm not, I'm not like, very familiar with each character as we go along. I love the introduction of another agent around uh, James Bond once he had left the, the MI6. Hmm. So I thought that that was interesting. I love the cinematography and the set design, the lighting. I mean, you've got to remember from my background, like I love watching traditional lighting. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something that carries through in this film mm. that honors that. What what didn't work for you? What was the bad? I didn't like the Billie Eilish song either. Okay. You know, but like if you started with Tina Turner nothing's really going to compare. <laughs> so I'm kind of fucked in that way. You know? Well, and I, I'm not that familiar with Billie Eilish's music. And so I was very open-minded mm-hmm. to hearing what she could bring to the table. Uh, are, are you familiar with her music? I'm actually, I'm not. I'm aware. Okay. I'm aware of her. I'm aware that she means a lot to a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, but that's about as far as it goes. Gotcha. Anything else that didn't work for you? No, I think the rest has to be talked about in spoilers. So shall we move on? Well, oh, yes. Well, first we have to rate it. Just in general, does the good outweigh the bad? I think so. I think this is probably one of my favorite James Bond movies. Probably my top. Excellent. And what do you score it? Oh, maybe an eight. I also scored an eight out of ten. You know, this thing's long. This thing's like two hours, 45 minutes after credits, and it didn't feel long. It goes pretty steadily. It was an enjoyable ride. And there's way more that I enjoyed about it than didn't enjoy about it. So I, I give it an 8 out of 10 also. Uh, we highly recommend you go to the theaters. Check out No Time to Die if your situation allows you to. If not, see it ASAP. And if you uh, haven't seen it yet, skip ahead. Look at the timestamps on the show notes to the Film Faves segment. But if you have seen it, come along with us. We're going to talk spoilers and final thoughts on No Time to Die starting now. Okay, so there's like three or four things we really wanted to touch on about this. The first one that we have to talk about is that this movie accomplishes something that no other James Bond movie has ever done before. Yeah. And that is... The death of James Bond. Yes. James Bond dies. And it's unquestionable that he dies. It is definitive that he dies. 
We see him blow up we at have, the end of the movie. We have seen him have many blasts come towards him, but none like this. So he's definitely dead. So that was interesting because that hadn't been done before. We'd seen like different bonds, right? And mm. I'd, I'd be curious, like, how many of the past bonds knew their last movie was their last movie because we've never seen a departure like designed as a departure like this before. And it's so it's such a definitive ending. How serious do you think they really are? I mean, I know his his body is obviously gone, <laughs> but but do you think they're being serious like What do you mean? Will there be another James Bond or will it just be labeled 007? Well, okay. So it's a little confusing because James Bond dies, but then after the credits, it says James Bond will return. And so... Maybe someone forgot to take that out. (laughs) Right. I actually thought that. It's like, okay, well, are you then suggesting that you're going to reset Bond again? And oh, if so, yeah. does that mean that we won't see any of these cast members again? Yeah. Because honestly, Judy, I believe this is historically accurate through the series, Judy Dench is the only one to carry through more than one Bond. I could be corrected on this, but I mean, I remember distinctly it was unusual for Judy Judy Dench as M from the Pierce Brosnan era to continue as M in Casino Royale, especially since Casino Royale was chronologically supposed to take place before Bond or early on when Bond first became a double O agent or something like that. The whole thing is kind of confusing because do you just kind of restart with someone else as Bond and all the other same characters? If so, that would be kind of disappointing because, like, I really like Ray Fiennes as M. I really like Naomi Harris as Money Penny. I really like mm. Ben Wishaw as Q. You know, oh, I guess Q is he, he went through all of the Bond movies until he died suddenly in a car accident. Desmond Lewin was the original Q. But he was like, I'm pretty sure he was the only constant because after a certain point, you couldn't replace Q. I don't know. I feel weird about it. So he died. Like, there's a def- there's a series of definitiveness to this movie because first, I believe first, Felix Leitner dies, played by Jeffrey Wright. Mm. Now, Felix Leitner... He always kind of represented the Americans um, because he was a CIA agent who popped in and out here and there throughout a good portion of the James Bond series. I can't remember which movie he first appeared in, Mm -hmm. but he was definitely in the Timothy Dalton movies. And I'm pretty sure he was established at some point, at least in the Roger Moore movies. Okay. And then so they brought him back. Um, I don't remember if he was in any of the Pierce Brosnan movies, but they brought him back in Casino Royale, played by Jeffrey Wright, and here he dies. So you have Felix uh, Leitner 
dying and you have James Bond dying. And I felt like there was someone else earlier something happened to, but I can't remember. And then you also have like someone else taking over the 007 designation. Yeah. That's Lashana Lynch. <laughs> that was rather fun. Which was great. Like, that's the thing. Like, having someone else take over as 007 would not be a bad thing. Like, I would be interested in, like, the next direction to be focused on the 007-ness of it all. You know, like, for the past 15, 20 years, you've heard all this chitter, chit-chat, chitty-chit-chit-chat, this is jibber-jabber <laughs> about whether or not a black person should take over the role, whether or not a woman should be the role. Well, mm. you know, the answer I think is to not have someone else be James Bond, but to have someone else be 007. And we yeah. do have that here. So why not continue the 007 series with Lashana Lynch? This is where I got ran into the problem is I feel like, her character wasn't written well enough to make me very excited about that character carrying a, a, a film primarily. Yet I thought Lashana Lynch did a really good job with what she was given. And she, you pointed out to me how she was kind of emotionally distant and she had one-liners when she killed someone. So she definitely fulfilled that role, so to speak. Of 007 that would be needed. I just, you and know. And she drinks. So, like, I don't know. Like, I think she fits all the criteria. And I just, I, I feel a little differently. I feel like it wasn't her time to shine. It was James's time to shine because it was his last it was his last film. Yeah. So I I am fine with what they did. And I just really hope that she gets to carry it on. And maybe what they need to do is not have a three, four year in between each film because, you know, they're kind of, they're changing it. This should come out a lot sooner. Hmm. Yeah, that is definitely something that the Broccoli's have always kind of held on to is making the Bond movies a little bit more of an event by not churning them out constantly. Uh, which is kind of funny because I'm pretty sure like originally they were turned out like almost annually or something like that, but mm. they've really like put the brakes on that over the past 20 or 30 years. And that's been an important thing, even though there's like financial issues that can come with not having a movie coming out every other year or whatever. But I think when I you're, know. when you're essentially changing it, and that sounds like that's what's happening. I, I think it's fine to have a film two years later. I think I think it's beneficial. Mm, yeah, possibly, possibly. I just I think like it would be better to not have James Bond return, at yeah. least in the foreseeable future. Yeah. At least in this vision of the franchise with this cast of characters, because I don't want to see Naomi Harris not be Money Penny. In fact, I feel like she's mildly underserved in this particular entry compared to Skyfall. Mm. I would like to see more of her. And I like Ben Wishaw as Q. By the way, we saw Q's home for the first time in my memory ever. Yeah, that was fun. That was interesting. So, yeah, 
I just think that if they were to continue with Lashana Lynch leading the series, the first movie would have to really do a lot for that character. Well, and that would be her time to shine, right? Or whoever's time to shine. Yeah. So I, I'm not too bothered by it. I'm excited about the possibilities. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on? The story. We, you wanted to touch on the story. Which this movie, yeah, it's a little bit, maybe a little hard to describe. But essentially Severin, played by Rami Malek, he has this whole scheme where like apparently a Spectre agent killed his family and he exacted revenge by killing or attempting to kill that agent's family. Madeline Swan was the agent's daughter. Madeline Swan obviously survived. And decades later, I guess Severin came up with this biomedical nanotechnical weaponized thingy. Or he didn't come uh, okay, up with it. Okay. But you know, no. Okay. So it's a weapon that targets the person via DNA, but then it can morph into family members or specific genetic traits within that DNA uh, strand. Yes. And so it's a way to do a targeted hit of several people at once. Because if you're targeting a particular family, you're going to wipe out that whole family. Yeah, M had to help develop it in MI6 secretly. That's what it was. And somehow Severin got wind of this. And so he um, obtained it and changed it. So And then acquired, you know, genealogy databases. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Uh, that will be the end of us, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so his that's one thing that you might be able to say is a flaw in it is is like the trying to make sense of his plan pivoting from taking revenge out on Spectre to it all of a sudden pivoting to the rest of the world and wanting to wipe out the rest of the world. Yeah. I'm not sure if the movie really makes sense of that pivot. And I think he just wants the way he wants the world the way he wants the world and he wants to manipulate the way he wants to manipulate and this is how he chose to do it. I have to say, like we've spoken about the henchmen, but we didn't speak about the scientist henchman, the the scientist bad guy, I really enjoyed that character. Yes, he was fun, but uh, um, I want I want to talk more about that story about the biomedical weaponry okay. because you wanted to talk about how it plays today. I think this can be a very scary thing to see, given how we've got a lot of a lot of conspiracy theories going around about vaccines you know there's obviously some things that are can be harmful to certain people with genetic disorders in vaccines and they have to be working closely with their doctors but you know it's kind of taken this life of its own where it's like oh well it's going to be a tracking device and oh it's going to be this or a camera or whatever the it's it's gonna make you only want to eat hot dogs and die from sodium overdose you know like i don't know i just think that it's super interesting because the movie, had we not had the pandemic, how would it have been read? You know, and now we're looking at it and it's like, okay, well, we've got all these theories flying around whether, uh, you know, we believe them or not. And so it's like, it's just very interesting. Well, I, th I think also it adds to the reading of the movie quite a bit. I mean, what happens at the end of the film? James Bond becomes infected 
with the virus that targets the ones he loves. And so he can't be with the ones he loves anymore. Mm. Right. And that's one of the motivators why he succumb like gives he in. checks out. Right. You know? I mean, like there's also a practicality aspect. Like he had to go back and close the doors that, that allowed the rockets to come back in. I mean, not close. He, he had, had to, go- to open them. Yeah. Sorry. He had to go back and reopen those doors because they were closing again. The missiles and, were already yeah. on their way. Yeah. And, and once the missiles were all launched, he had nine minutes to clear the island, which from a very practical, it would take nine minutes to get to the shore from where he is more or less. Right. Let alone like maybe 20 minutes out from or 20 feet out from the shore. So, you know, there is very much a, oh, well, he ran out of time. He's, he's dead kind of thing. But yeah. also, like, the realization once it dawns on him that if he ever makes physical contact with the people he loves, they will die. Yeah. And the people he loves, by the way, we haven't even touched on this. He has a daughter. Madeline yes. Swan birthed his daughter. Matilda. During the five years that they were apart. Yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Oh, did you? Did you foresee this? Oh, my God. Don't be such an ass. <laughs> you were like, when he pushes, from the opening oh title gosh, sequence before go. that, you were like, oh, he a has a child. I can tell she's oh pregnant. She has a certain glow. Well, t- for fuck's sakes. She, when she's pushed onto the train, she holds her stomach in a very particular way. I'm like, well, fuck. Looks like you're maybe pregnant there. Huh. You know? Really? I'll have to uh, check that out. I didn't notice that. It's very subtle. I, I told my mother, and even she didn't pick it up, and she's more of a, I knew this would happen, than <laughs> me. <laughs> so um, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, there's a daughter right there. Not yours. <laughs> That's bullshit. So that was pretty entertaining. I, I like that. I like the daughter. I also really loved how they wrote the daughter. This Really? I did. You know, she's very cute. She wants to know if mosquitoes have friends. It's a valid question. I hate mosquitoes. That was a red herring. I thought that that was trying to indicate that she was infected with something. And it went like nowhere with that. So I well, was, you're just I was picking surprised. up on the wrong signals. <laughs> yeah, apparently. So I I loved what she was, how she thought, and I loved that you know when she got given to Rami Malek's character, she kind of kept it together through almost <laughs> touching a poisonous plant to sitting down uh, watching who would be her father beg for their lives to going down a scary tunnel. And it was only when she lost her dolly that she bit Rami and that was her capacity. She had reached capacity. That's done. My, I don't have my doll. I'm done with you. And I just, I love that. To, to, first of all, to which he says, Oh, okay, go ahead, leave, which is kind of weird. I'm not going to protect you anymore. So it was flippant. What do you call it? Manipulation. He probably right. thought she was going to come back to him, but she just looks at him with this blank stare of like, I'm done with your shit and runs off. Do you think they assumed she would die? Yeah. Okay. So second thing, I don't know a single child that would experience the experiences that this child has gone through, including gunfights in a forest and being taken from her mom and not cry. I don't know a single yeah. child that wouldn't cry. This child is stoic as fuck. It they, was... they, well, 
think about what Madeline would have to do given Madeline's experience growing up. She would definitely take from her own experience and enforce security with Matilda. She would definitely be saying, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. Listen to me. And I, so, but would she have cried when she got pushed into Rami's arms and then mommy got taken away? Yeah, she should have cried. Yeah, so. there's a lot of uh, moments like that. I mean, just the, the scariness, the loud noise of <laughs> guns. Like this child, this is a, a very small child. So after a certain point, I was a little bit taken out. Of that. I was like, that child is way too quiet and, and stoic to, for what's going on. But minor quibble. Anything we'll else? Also think about the DNA she has. So it's entirely possible that 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 is just the child she is going to be. Oh, also Blofeld died. Yeah, that was a nice way to do it. I knew instantly when Daniel Craig like touched Blofeld, Madeline. Oh, Madeline. Oh, that that had transferred. Yeah, yeah. That we would be in for trouble. Well, it doesn't. It's not the wisest thing that you have that cage. Like, why not have a, a plexiglass? in the front or something separating they did it it got raised up so they could talk yeah they could talk with plexiglass (laughs) with little holes if we can do that at the grocery store you can sure as fuck do that and in maximum security secret location anyway yeah anything else you want to speak to no I, I think that's it I, I like that he ended up with a family there's a cute moment where he's like this who's is who's he who's he uh, Daniel Craig is like speaking to the new 007 what is her Lashana Lynch Lashana I don't know Lynch. the character's name oh. that's another thing well I don't think we got given it we we might have okay Jeff's gonna look it up her name is apparently Nomi oh Nomi okay cool yeah would not have remembered that or known that whatsoever I don't know if that that's a necessarily good thing but these are our thoughts on No Time to Die what do you think of No Time to Die feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. And now it's time for Film Faves. Film Faves is the part of the show where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. We do this partially to give you an idea of what our taste in movies are, but also to hopefully expose you to things maybe you haven't seen or heard of before. To that end, we try to point you in the direction of streaming subscription services that they may be available on. There's a lot of subscription services, so we just focus on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Apple TV+, Disney+, and HBO Max, yeah? I think you got them all, yeah. All right, cool. I always have to double-check with you because there's a handful. Um, So with this episode... We are focusing on opening title sequences, which is one of many of the defining characteristics of what makes up a James Bond movie. You always have to have a really cool opening title sequence. So what is an opening title sequence? It is not just when the cast and crew and the title of the movie is mentioned at the beginning of our movie. No, this is typically a segment of the movie that is completely removed from the action or largely removed or most often removed from the action of the movie it is its own segment of the movie sometimes the movie starts with an opening title sequence sometimes it'll have a pre-title scene like a james bond movie and then it'll have an opening title sequence and then it'll start the action of the movie right 
So that's what we're looking at here. We went through the entire history of film. <laughs> looking wow, that's, through that's a bit of pressure there. <laughs> we did. It was a lot of pressure. There's a lot of movies. Now, the good thing is most movies in the golden age and in the silent era were very limited technologically when it comes to opening title sequences. And in fact, like how it used to be in the golden era is all of the the credits were up front, right? Yeah. In a bunch of different slides. And then once the movie ended, it just said you had a, the end title card and that's it. Now, in a way, because there's so much, so many limitations with the technology of that entire era, there were very few films to really kind of take into consideration as possible contenders for this list from that era, right? There was a couple like My Mad Godfrey was one of the first to do something different with the cast being like billboard signs or what have you. Yeah, and then panning left to right across yeah. a sort of city panorama and then, you know, converting from illustration into live action correct yes exactly the disney movies were typically pr uh, the, pretty much the same maybe it would be a storybook that would open you know from that era and it would have the cast oh, yeah. something the like sleeping beauty was beautiful you know really sticking with that style of medieval and then the rest of the movie follows suit with that right but it wouldn't be until like 1961 1960s um 101 dalmatians when they would start playing around with their opening title sequence. so that kind of made the job easy to have like at least 30 to 60 years worth of film mostly removed from consideration just because it all fell, followed a standard. Well, I have to say, I didn't consider animation at all. Mm. I think I'm considering certain animated movies for our, uh, like, what is it called? Opening sequences? Yeah, pre-title pre sequences. Pre-title sequences. Yeah. I think it's more of uh, that kind of situation as opposed to opening titles. Okay. Okay, very good. Yeah, so it's worth uh, discussing that and kind of distinguishing a little bit and so, but it was still really hard. Like for myself, I had a list of upwards of 50 movies that I had to whittle down to 12 movies that had opening title sequences that were, that were worth, you know, considering for this list that I, that I actually loved. Not that that actually existed. There's a lot more that exists, but I had upwards of 50 that I actually loved. So it was definitely a gargantuan task. I'm sure you felt the same way. It's it's a big responsibility and you also have to wade through well what what is actually adhering to the criteria here and what kind of breaks away from that oh well now it doesn't qualify so there was a lot to consider while going through those and of course you can look up you know best opening title sequences ever mm. and you'll find a bunch of cool stuff yeah like anything from it's a mad mad world all the way to you know honey I shrunk the kids to uh, you know James Bond movies well, like, you, and Mission Impossible, you know? Yeah, you know, you're bringing up some things, which is like sometimes you get an opening title sequence that's animated. Sometimes yeah. you get one that's a montage of It's things. very cool. They seem to have, and I looked at my list considering this, there's definitely different styles that tend to repeat themselves. There's something working with text. There's the aerial shot, you know, where they have the, the 
text going in the sky. Uh, there's a few movies that do that. And then there, it seems to be any, anything done with Danny Elfman. It <laughs> yeah. seems to be his thing. There's like the whole documents that lead up to whatever is happening, whether it's a, a sort of reporter story or something about, you know, monsters. There's illustration and the illustration can vary. It can be characters, characters, in there or it could just be abstracted with lines and shapes this is different Um, from animated like i feel like animated is you've got characters Mm -hmm. but then illustration can kind of draw that line between okay we're just dealing with text and uh, with font and shapes but then sometimes it kind of goes in between that territory it's like what's a a really good example of this that's not on your list Oh, no, I don't have one of those. It's on my list. <laughs> okay. Um, and then there's like, oh, we're going to follow the story of an object or a person. Mm. And, you yeah. know, then the movie jumps off. And then there's the, the the movies that have like paused action or a little bit of movement and then pause, a little bit of movement, pause, introducing certain things. And then there's, you know, these movies that start with a really good song. And it could be you know, something fantastical is happening while the song is going with the characters or it's the character in their bedroom. Something like Adventures in Babysitting has uh, that song. Oh, that's such a great one. What is that one. song? And Then He Kissed Me. Yes, And Then He yes. Kissed Me. And she's she's kind of dancing to have fun, but then also mimicking what's going on. So oh, yeah. asked me to marry him and she puts the, 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 curtain. the curtain on her head like a veil. Yes. Uh, and that's really fun. And and then sometimes it'll be usually a Marvel movie or a superhero movie where you know there's a, it's an established franchise, uh, established character, and they're just quickly catching you up on their backstory before they start the movie. You're talking about in the opening title sequence that yeah. will happen. Hmm. I can't even think of one that is like that. Or maybe is the one on your list that's like that. Or one that you considered like that? So I think The Incredible Hulk is kind of catching you up just a little bit. It's not a lot. It's not photo montaging the bejesus out of you. But it's like, here's some chemicals. Oh, oops. Right. And here we have a Hulk. You no, know? I forgot about that one. That's a that's a good call. So sometimes it's subtle. And yeah. sometimes it's just referring to one element of a character. And sometimes it's the whole thing. So here's two two broad points that you're kind of like dancing around that really make for a really great opening title sequence, I think. First of all, the entire purpose of an opening title sequence is to get you settled into the movie, to get you into the vibe, the feel, the mood of, of what you're about to get into. And the second thing is often a really good song or score can help make the opening title sequence. Again, the James Bond franchise is uh, heavily reliant on their james bond song exactly and sometimes they don't have a great theme song and that affects whether or not the opening title sequence is a great one and then you have something like star wars where if you're a star wars fan and you hear you hear the beginning like just one note (laughs) of that of that piece of music and it you see the yellow text yeah and it brings tears to your eyes as a graphic designer that is a horrible choice, having yellow text on black. Oh. and Well, I think it is. And and then warping it the way you do. At the time, it must have been very exciting when it yeah. first came out. But, you know, you, I look on it now and I'm like, well, it's not really the best choice. I don't think, you know, I could have passed a grade with that kind of, you know, manipulation of font. But it's that music. 
you know, that really gets you going. You remind me of one other thing. It can't just be the title in order to be an opening title sequence. It has to have, uh, and, and other lists that uh, I looked at actually established this too. It has to have uh, credits along with it. It can't mm. just be the title. It has to be credits as well. So something like The Lion King was immediately removed from yes. consideration because you literally have three second title and then it gets into the movie. And so, that falls under opening sequence, pre-sequences, what? Before that, yes, the pre-title. The pre-title. Yeah. That is going to fall into that category. Right. So that's probably going to be number one because we all know that that's maybe, brilliant. Maybe. So. so I think we've established pretty well what mm-hmm. it is we're talking about here. Is there anything else you want to say about this before you get into your pick for your 12th favorite opening title sequence? I think horror has too much of a good time with this. Oh. Like if I I looked at Dawn of the Dead, the Zack Snyder one, Uh and I was like, you're having too much fun with this. Like it's very scary, very jarring, quick sort of flash cuts between, between things. Okay. Um, I like when they play with font as well. Like, so in that one, it's a good example of, you know, the font is red and then they, it's like they've made a liquid and then they blow it away with like a straw or something. So it's like the blood blows away. So you're not having blood splatter. Instead, you're having blood removal, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Okay. Okay. That was a cheat. (laughs) That was a cheat one. Are, Are there horror opening title sequences on your list or are you saying that? You, you thought that genre as a whole didn't really appeal to you. I felt like I was going to stay away from that, okay. definitely. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well, what did you uh, stay close to and uh, ended up being your 12th favorite? My number 12 is The Shining from 1980. So I'll just read a description and then I'll get into the title sequence, why it's so cool. A family heads to an isolated hotel, God only knows why, for the winter. I don't know why they don't turn it into a ski motel, hotel, where a sinister presence influences the father into violence while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. This is a Stephen King novel. It's very cool how they have the opening title sequence because it's one of my favorite aerial styles of opening. What they're doing differently is they're not keeping the horizon steady. Immediately, you're unsettled with this movie. And you're going to be unsettled throughout the whole movie. And it's just the first three seconds that unsettle you. The way in which they do that is by having an aerial shot where the horizon is never level. Um, And our brains subconsciously need us to do that. We're constantly looking for the horizon. If you're into photography, you'll know how important it is to straighten the horizon so that your viewers don't feel like they're going to puke. And not only is the horizon not being leveled, we're also high up in the air. So we're having a bit of vertigo. We're having a bit of seasickness happening, air sickness, if you will. And they're changing the scene. So you can tell they're kind of in an airplane or whatever. And okay, we're over a lake now. It's pretty. Okay, now we're just looking at the mountains. Okay, now we're looking at the snow. And it's very jarring to keep moving. And sometimes you see water. So you think you're going to see a horizon. There's no horizon. Sometimes you see the mountain and you think, oh, I'm going to see the top peaks leveling out. Nope, no leveling out for you. So just with the music and lack of horizon leveling, we're, we're very uneasy and feel nauseated from the get-go. So that is The Shining, and it's available on HBO Max. 
Excellent. My 12th favorite opening title sequence is from a comedy. There's a couple comedies on my list. 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which has the comedy troupe Monty Python doing uh, basically poking fun at King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table on their quest for the Holy Grail. It is a ridiculous film, but it definitely sets the scene with the opening title sequence in which, if you are a careful observer, you'll notice a lot of nonsense having to do with llamas being in the (laughs) opening title sequence, as well as eventually you'll see uh, title cards or captions that speak to a lot of... um, well, frankly, people being fired for the <laughs> for screwing up the opening title sequence. It is really silly. It's really funny. It definitely is something that has never been done before. It hasn't really been done since. Some movies have messed with the end credits. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no one's really messed with the opening titles like... Mighty Python did with the Holy Grail. That movie, you can check out this for yourself on Netflix. My number 11 is Alien from 1979. This is after a space merchant vessel receives an unknown transmission as a distress call. One of the crew is attacked by a mysterious life form, and they soon realize that its life cycle has merely begun. I love this opening title sequence because... We're taking the music by Jerry Goldsmith and we're in what appears to be the deepest, darkest space because you just see black and tiny, tiny white specks of stars. And it's also, it's doing the panning from left to right. And eventually we go kind of into a planet type situation. If I remember correctly, it's like a, it's almost like an eclipse, right? Well, you're definitely panning over a solar system and certain planets are in alignment, if I remember correctly, and some are closer than others. What's nice about this is you've got this rectang- long rectangular shape, right? Because it's, what is that ratio? Widescreen. I don't know the ratio okay. exactly. But-, but, you know, it's not your typical horizontal shape. And it's a lovely long rectangle and you're panning from left to right. Eventually, you're in a planet. It's like you've put this circle on top of this rectangle. So circles are very inviting and calming. And (laughs) it's not that way because within the circle, you've got alien, the word alien slowly being revealed in very diagonal, very sharp ways, just piece by piece, each line of each letter is being revealed at different times. And so it's got this very jaggered stabbiness to it, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word, very pointy diagonals can be super great when you're when you have your rectangle base, your your nice circle, and then you're putting diagonals in and you're not really sure what's going to happen with them it's very unsettling Mm. especially with the music and the setting of space and we don't know a lot about space or at least we knew very very little in 79 compared to now Mm. it's you know it's more out there with the knowledge but i love that one it's nice calm very uneasy in no horizon for you kind of way it's very unsettling yeah but that is alien from 1979 very good my 11th favorite is actually when I was referring previously to a movie that 
movies how that mess with the end credits mm. this pick actually is the one i was thinking of that does that actually it's another comedy it is 1988's the naked gun from the files of police squad <laughs> yeah that is a fun one now this this opening title sequence i, I cannot tell you exactly what it's parodying but it is parodying a cop show it seems where through the opening titles you would you would be following along a cop car because this one it is the camera is fixed to the top of a cop car cop car with its siren going and you're you're following wherever the car goes however the car goes into the most zaniest places maybe it's a roller coaster maybe it's a woman's uh, shower maybe, you know all sorts of different hijinks ensue with this one cop car and where <laughs> it's going it is ridiculous but it's also unforgettable yeah you never forget the naked gun opening title sequence once you have seen it it was very silly at the time and unlike anything else anybody had done, and definitely gets you settled on what you're in for yeah, here. Yeah, you're in for hijinks for sure. Absolutely. So that's my 11th favorite, The Naked Guns opening title sequence from 1988. My number 10 is Fargo. Minnesota Carl oh. Salesman Jerry Lundgaard's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. This made your list. Um, yeah, it did. From 1996. Uh, here's why it's pretty cool. You know, you got Carter Burwell doing the music. And the first thing you see with this movie is this is a true story. And then there's a paragraph after that that states, you know, all these things are true. We're protecting the survivors. And you think, what the fuck is about to happen? You know? And it's this really sweet, soft harp music, harp type music playing. And we switch to from this black cue card to a plain white background. And eventually we see a bird and then we see a car coming. And this is just like heavy snow for someone like me from South Africa. It's very cool to see because I'm not used to snowstorms, etc. Uh, but here's Minnesota for you, Shanna. And it's just it looks like such a pure peaceful movie hmm. you know it looks like we're gonna have a really lovely time and we have no idea what we're really in for <laughs> and and what's going to happen you know all this innocence through the this psychological white color is all about to be destroyed so well i think you're being slightly misleading about the score because it's not so much um lovely heart music is it is like the slow, a slow build, build of, of strings that crescendos, mm -hmm. and I think horns as well, if I'm not mistaken, that crescendos once the car gets closer. And it brings this like epic feeling to this small community kind of setting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, I don't know. You think something really epic is going to happen like knights in horses, on horses or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's Fargo. Okay, so my 10th favorite was referenced by you earlier, actually. It is Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004, which, as I recall, it mm. pretty much details the downfall of civilization through this zombie apocalypse. This is a great example, again, of a really great song choice 
making the opening title sequence. Because imagine watching this in silence. Hmm. But yeah. if it does not have the same effect. It's disturbing, but it does not have the same effect without Johnny Cash's The Man Comes Around, mm-hmm. which he it was from an album that came out like the year before oh. American Recording for The Man Comes Around, which was his last album that was released before he died. Great album. Opening song to that album. And talk about setting the mood, man. <laughs> it is so, so awesome. And this is, you know, this is like a, a huge opening statement. This movie and its pre-title sequence, an opening statement for a first-time director. So it, it, was, it was quite something. Of all of Snyder's movies, this and only one other movie mm. has a good contender for actually having done this right and having done it well. That's Dawn of the Dead, the remake from 2004. That's my 10th favorite opening title sequence. And, oh, I should say, also, I'm going to create a blog post that you can find on thegibsonreview.com that will actually try to embed each of these opening title sequences that we're discussing so you can check them out yourself in addition to hearing us talk about it in this podcast. All right, my next one is from 2014. It's not available to stream. It's Godzilla. I don't think I need to explain what this is. If you don't know who Godzilla is, then look it up. Listen to what I'm about to say. (laughs) So I just love this title, opening title sequence, because of how well it does the found documents, scratched out secretness of the documents. And if you understand where the idea of Godzilla comes from. It comes from, you know, atomic nuclear testing, bomb testing. It, it comes from the destruction of the Atoll, Atoll Islands. If you are aware of that and aware of who Godzilla is and the culture around it, you will love this opening title sequence because there are lots of little clippings and maps and photography from when they were test when America was testing the nuclear bombing on these islands and it really gives you a sense of you know where does Godzilla come from supposed to come from you know it really deepens my appreciation with the film because it's one of those yeah learn about this character real quick but you have to know one or two things if in order to understand what's happening also a really great score I don't remember who the composer was for that film but it it it, it definitely helps with the mood of things too definitely i'll quickly look that up it's definitely one of our favorite scores isn't it throughout the film not just the opening title sequence it's by alexandra Desplat. oh yeah that's who it is yeah very good okay so my ninth favorite opening title sequence is from 1993 it is philadelphia which is available i believe on amazon prime Now, Philadelphia was a bit of a landmark tour de force dramatic uh, courtroom drama, really, about Tom Hanks playing a character who is an AIDS patient. He was fired uh, by his law firm, very prestigious law firm, it seems, once they learned that he has AIDS. And Denzel Washington plays his homophobic lawyer. The opening title sequence of this movie is 
really focusing on the city of Philadelphia. It's it's almost like making the city of Philadelphia a character in the film. It's establishing shots throughout the city while you have Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia, which I believe was written and recorded for this movie. Very moving song. It definitely sets the tone of the film and it sets the scene of the city and, and all its different uh, aspects of the, the city too. And it's, it's, it's always one that's really kind of stuck with me in terms of opening title sequences from dramas. So that is Philadelphia from 1993, available on Amazon Prime. Okay, my next one is a great example of giving you an idea for what you're in for, uh, hitting certain beats of the story. And that is Catch Me If You Can from 2002. It's available on Prime. This is so great. The way they're describing what we're in for is through illustration. We're following our two main characters who are silhouetted illustrations, not and, and what I thought was interesting was they weren't just solid silhouettes. They were kind of sponged with a little bit of light coming through them, you know, moving through different scenes and backgrounds. And Tom Hanks's character is chasing Leonardo DiCaprio, who is a forger. He appears to be a doctor, a lawyer, a pilot. and yeah, he's a con man. Yeah, you know, he's going through all these different careers. And so the backgrounds are kind of matching with that. And it's also kind of happening with that sort of 50s madman advertising color palette. So I, I really... 60s, but yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, in the 60s. And the score is by John Williams. And it's really interesting, really lovely, lovely score. Yeah, I think that one's led by an oboe, which is a very unique choice for mm. John Williams' score. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very cool. I love that one. My eighth favorite opening title sequence is the first of, I don't know, a couple maybe animated opening title sequences. It is from 1991 City Slickers. I've never seen a lot of comedies on my list, interestingly <laughs> enough. And, you know, there was uh, in the 80s and 90s, but especially the 80s, this is like right at the beginning of the 90s, there was a, a handful of movies that had an, uh, animated opening title sequences. This was one of them, essentially of this cowboy character lassoing various things to his own peril. Sometimes it's the credits, sometimes it's a cactus, sometimes it's a bull's <laughs> horns. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, even though I think we talked about it in a fairly recent episode of The Movie Lovers, City Slickers features Billy Crystal going through a midlife crisis. His friends take him out on his 39th birthday. I always think it's 40th. It's 39th birthday to a cattle drive uh, experience mm. to, to help him and, and think it'll be a really great experience that'll give him, you know, a sense of youth and life or whatever. An adventure. Hilarious movie started with a very silly, funny opening title sequence that ends with uh, Billy Crystal's mouth screaming <laughs> from the pain oh, of, yeah. of having, you know, he, he got gored. Yeah. In a pre-title sequence. Yes, he got there we go. Gored. But uh, anyway, 
I always thought this was amusing and fun. And there's there's a few animated opening title sequences I love. This is one of them. Just barely made the list. City Slickers from 1991. It is my eighth favorite opening title sequence. My next one's available on Disney. No, it's not animated. It is Black Widow from 2021. Oh, Marvel Studios, silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you totally threw me off. I was like, oh, is it? Is it the? Is it that one? No. Oh, oh, it's a Marvel. Oh movie. well, there we go. It's on Disney Plus. Is what I was trying to get at. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> That's what I was. That was my intention of including it. I love this opening title sequence. You know, we take "Smells Like Teen Spirit," which is by Nirvana, but instead we get a cover done by Malia J. I don't know much of her other work, but I love her softness and containedness, but also when appropriate letting go of the anger a version of the song it's so good i'm like this definitely should be a song sung by woman absolutely <laughs> you know <laughs> thinking about what it's like growing up as a girl it's about 4 minutes long it's tackling subjects like human trafficking and the disposal of girls and how girlhood can be completely messed up and well let's just throw in some other issues to show you how hard it is this is a good example of what i was referring to earlier where we're getting you know we know who we're dealing with we know that we're getting black widow and we're getting a little bit of her childhood like what happened what what was her life like leading up to now and we get a quick hash dash of that it's very quick cuts it's showing her in the organization I don't know what the organization's name is, but I know that they're being trained to be killers, to be Black Widows. Mm. The Red Room is being referenced there. You know, if you know the character, you're going to know everything that's happening. The only thing that's confusing to me is why are the children watching DuckTales? (laughs) (laughs) And drinking juice boxes. Like, that's a little weird for me. Like, is that their downtime before they go do some more chopping and (laughs) shooting like i i don't know is that their reset so that's black widow i love it i it's one of my favorite and probably one of the longer ones on my list Mm. and that's available on disney plus my seventh favorite opening tile sequence is from 1986's an american tale a good Don Q Shanna crying in just one moment here. Uh, well, I'll get to that. <laughs> a Don Bluth animated movie, probably my favorite Don Bluth animated movie. It is about immigrant mice trying to escape uh, trouble at home in Russia to America, a land of promise and opportunity and optim- optimism where there are no cats, <laughs> supposedly. And the thing is, that it, it starts. With this just absolutely beautiful opening title sequence that's, that begins with pretty much just a single violin and what I think might be like a harp or something as the animation follows a single snowflake drifting in the air. And it's a really close up animation of that snowflake so you see all the details of the snowflake eventually and this is one of the few opening title sequences that actually can make me cry because of its simplicity and its beauty and again it's all about that score how how much 
a score or the right song can really make an opening title sequence. And that is definitely the case here. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of animation. Uh, American Tale from 1986 is what I'm talking about. It's my seventh favorite opening title sequence. So I was wrong. I said that Black Widow was like one, one of my longest ones, but I'm wrong. This next one is about eight minutes long. What? Oh, I know what you, <laughs> you mean. You got it? Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. So it's available on HBO. It's from 92. It is The Player. A Hollywood studio executive is being sent death threats by a writer whose script he rejected. But which script? Which writer? Who's doing this? Will we ever find out? The, the way that they get this opening title sequence going is it it's it's one of those misleading things again with the way the music is it feels like it's just a sleepy town slowly waking up and then it gets busier and busier as we go because we're at a hollywood lot and there's papers flying everywhere there's people bumping into each other there's jargon being thrown left right center above us below us because we're following Basically, the camera is going round and round and round and maybe goes and does two or three circulations around the same area. And so we're coming across a lot of different characters talking about different things. We hear two or three stories being pitched in this eight minutes. We're seeing a lot of familiar faces who are either playing themselves or uh, are playing different characters. It's super interesting. I absolutely love all the little things that they're using to set up that's going to pay up, pay off later. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. Yeah, you know, this is one of the few examples that is separate from the action of the movie, but not really. It establishes where we are in the movie, and it does establish a particular piece of mail that becomes important and central to the plot. Mm. But largely, this is Robert Altman trying to outdo Orson Welles from Touch of Evil, his work in Touch of Evil, a long-ass tracking shot, of which gets referenced in the opening title sequence uh, between Fred Ward and another character. Fred Ward is always talking about cut, cut, cut. He's always criticizing today's movies, but... (laughs) <laughs> then someone will say, well, have you seen this from older movie? And he's like, oh, I've never heard of that. I've never seen yes. it. You know, which is really like hilarious. Trying to reference it. And, yeah. And you have. And how do you not know that? <laughs> who is it? Buck. Is it Buck Henry? Is that his name? Uh, who wrote The Graduate, who recently passed away. He's he's mm. in there pitching. So, yeah. <laughs> trying to pitch a sequel, which is kind of funny. To the Graduate. Too. Yeah. It's like, let's let's keep milking what we've got that worked, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so a yeah. lot of commentary can be you know, analyzed yes. just in those eight minutes. Yes, yeah, so it exemplifies a lot. And it's not great. even the story yet, you know, and there's so much you could dive into. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And it is considered one of the all-time greatest opening title sequences. Almost made my list. My next one, as we hit the halfway mark, my sixth favorite opening title sequence, you cannot have a list like this without including a Bond film, a opening title sequence from the James Bond series, The question is, which one do you choose? I do have about four or five favorites out of the 20 plus movies in the entire franchise. And maybe I'll have them on the article I mentioned that will detail our favorite opening title sequences. But the one I am landing on that just barely makes my favorite of all of them is... 
the one from Goldeneye, 1995. Mm. So let's set the scene here. 1995, there hadn't been a James Bond film in six years. This was essentially <laughs> reigniting the franchise. Just just six years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. people Which, were starving. Well, I mean, taking into consideration for the past 20 mm-hmm. years or so, there had been a Bond film almost every single year or every mm-hmm. other year or something. You know, there wasn't this huge gap in years largely for between James Bond films. So you had a new James Bond, you had Pierce Brosnan, you had a new M, you had a new, let's see, no, you still had the original Q. He was one of the only holdovers, but you have all the elements. It, like this movie was trying to exemplify the best that the franchise could be. And that begins not only with a great pre-title sequence with great stunts, but also with a great opening title sequence that has a lot of the elements that, that you come to expect with the silhouettes of women or women being in, integrated into the opening title sequence. Or objectified. You know, you can say it. Integrated somehow into the opening title <laughs> sequence, as well as elements of the story. In this case, it has to do with Soviets, so you get a lot of sickles and hammers. You got a great theme song. Mm, Sun by Tina Turner. Best. Golden Eye. Written by The Edge and Bono. It has some of the best visuals of all the opening title sequences in the entire Bond franchise. It it did exactly what it needed to in 1995, which is get people back in love with James Bond franchise and just absolutely like confident that they're in good hands. And they were for at least one movie. (laughs) Martin Campbell did this one. So again, Goldeneye 1995 it is available on Hulu. It is my one mm. pick that's on Hulu. Nice. I never have anything that's on Hulu. So we'll see if something comes up later. My next one is not available to stream anywhere, which is a shame. It's from 2005. It talk about having the right song for what it's worth by Buffalo Springfield. It's Lord of War. Oh. I absolutely love this freaking movie. Uh, an arms dealer, Nicolas Cage, confronts the morality of his work as he is being chased by an Interpol agent. This is one of the best opening title sequences. I know it's not my number one, but this is favorites. But this technically, technical-wise, is great. It's the following the birth and death of a bullet. You're following how it's made, where it gets packaged, how it moves across different countries, continents even, to get to its final place, a war-torn... Third world country. Third world country on the African continent and where it ends up in a child's head. And it's just very macro-focused. You constantly see the bullet. You mean micro-focused? Well, macro is the kind of lens, you know, oh. it's very in focus, but yeah, you know, it's whatever you, word you want. And w- with the music and with the grittiness and darkness of not only the subject matter, but lighting and cinematography just makes this the perfect opening title sequence for this kind of movie. Excellent. A uh, point of clarification, when we say it's not a movie's not available to stream, it's just not available to stream on the subscription platforms that we talk about. Usually a movie is available to rent on Amazon. Just about every time. And if not yeah. Amazon, definitely Apple TV, I'm noticing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So moving on with my fifth favorite opening title sequence. It is from 1984. 
It is Footloose. <laughs> the movie about a small town that that bans dancing. Yeah. No teens can dance. There's a lot of things teens can't do for their own safety, essentially. At what point are they going too far, necessarily? But... <laughs> This movie starts with an opening title sequence just of people dancing, focused on their shoes. Mm-hmm. It's clearly just a bunch of teenagers or, or teenager-like people, youth dancing, moving their feet, various different footwear, each pair of shoes as their own style of dancing. No one's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's got that Kenny Loggins theme song, Footloose <laughs> Plan. Yeah. And it definitely gets you into a vibe. Uh, not a movie that's necessarily a like a, a great fun time, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of other movies that came out in 1984. This is not Gremlins. This is not Ghostbusters. But it, <laughs> it definitely, like this, it, it gets you in the vibe of the soundtrack for sure. Mm-hmm. And what this movie is about, which is celebrating through dance and letting loose and having fun. Uh, getting energy out just innocent fun absolutely mm-hmm. so i always loved the opening title sequence to footloose it stuck with me so it is my fifth favorite opening title sequence my next one is available on disney plus from 2017 guardians of the galaxy volume 2 ah. i freaking love this opening title sequence i i wish that i loved volume one more because I like volume one song more. I'm trying to remember. What's the opening title sequence of the, of the vo- first film? Star-Lord is going to go get the Infinity oh. Stone. Right, 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 right. Or whatever it is. That little ball, right? That has an Infinity Stone. Does it? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, as far as I understood. Right, he's dancing. He's having a good time. And yeah. he's singing into an alien creature. Yeah. It's weird. But with this one, what's cool is now we're a team. They're on some sort of weird, very electric looking platform on another planet with this ginormous alien that has more teeth, rows of teeth than a shark or a megalodon. And they're all fighting except for Groot. Groot is tiny again. Yeah, and he's, a baby. he's like, yeah. you know, he's going through his life cycle again and he's trying to plug in the music because like i'm not gonna help until i get some music going here he's we not even going music. to help really. i'm like i just i need a dance this is what i need in life and he eventually gets it plugged in and the, the time they take with trying to get that connected was it's just like, so sweet yeah it's just a few seconds yeah but yeah <laughs> and so as he's dancing around everyone else trying to kill this alien <laughs> It's like he's having this good time and everyone else is like, Groot, you're going to get hurt. And then Star-Lord's getting, you know, knocked out. Right. <laughs> getting dazed. And Gamora is doing what she does best. And then she's like, you're going to get hurt. And she's like, hi. <laughs> so it's right, because like, he waves at her. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you come to Drax and Drax is like, why is this thing not moving every time I come near it? And then Ro- Rocket, Rocket is like, you know, he sees that Groot tried to eat a bug. Oh. And he knocks the bug out of Groot's mouth, and then Groot gets upset. <laughs> yeah, and gets knocked out, gets knocked off something eventually. But then you think it's all going to be sad and tears, and he just starts dancing some more. This song is just so cool. It's beautiful. It's it's so vibrant. I love it. Well, that's a really great example of of 
where like first of all the entire scene as i recall is fairly inconsequential to the rest of the movie right and yeah, this pretty much and all the actions happening in 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 the background for the most part mm-hmm. and then it kind of weaves in and out of the foreground and background mm-hmm. as uh, baby groot is dancing and you have the the credits going along and it, it's a great way to get you into the the film and get you settled yes. into it Yes, because, you know, the volume, it's also like one of those like expectations were made because of volume one. The music selection was so good. So you better have good music. And it did not fail to disappoint because they picked a really good song and they showed what the team does best. Well, one team member does best. (laughs) It's like dancing and enjoying the music. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the rest of the soundtrack, not quite on that level. No, no. But at least the first song was good. Okay, so my fourth favorite is also very much dependent on a song. It is from 2017. It is Baby Driver. This also had a pre-title sequence. And then uh, we have Baby, the main character who is a getaway driver for a group of bank robbers, essentially, led by Kevin Spacey. And I forgot his name. The uh, Ansel Elgort, I believe, plays Baby, the main character. He's going on what we learn to be a coffee run. And this <laughs> is a single tracking shot of him going down the street to the coffee shop and then back to where he where this meeting is being held. That is so very well timed with little bits of graffiti and stuff speckled throughout that have pieces of the lyrics of the song. Mm. And he hits these points roughly just as these pieces of lyrics are being said Mm. in the song. There's so many great details. I don't know how many times they had to redo this, but there's um, other things that he has to hit. Ansel Elgort has to hit at the right time. So it's all about how him having the right speed to his gait and how he's moving with the music and interacting with the people and the objects around him. It is extraordinary. It's a wonderful start. You already had a great start with this excellent pre-title sequence of this, this car chase or this, this getaway, I should say. And then you have this opening title sequence and it just is like, Oh my gosh, we're in for an amazing Mm. time here filmed by Edgar Wright. And so, yes, it is my fourth favorite opening title sequence. Baby Driver from 2017. My number three. Wow, are we really on number three now? Yeah, your third favorite of all time. (laughs) It's Deadpool from 2016. It was very hard for me to watch this opening title sequence and not finish the film. And that's what (laughs) would happen with some of these is like I, I wanted to keep going. Uh, And that was especially true for Deadpool and Fargo. So what is Deadpool? Because maybe you're not like my son, my stepson, and maybe you don't know who he is. He's a wisecracking mercenary who gets experimented on and becomes uh, immortal, but ugly. This is Ryan Reynolds, sexiest man alive, who's being turned ugly. (laughs) And he sets out to track down the man who ruined his good looks. So here's, imagine the scene, Okay. This is one of those great examples where it's frozen action and the camera's weaving in and out of different positions to see the whole 360 and everything in between of the scene. Deadpool is in a car, 
kind of collision it seems uh there kind of looks like they're in the air there's a motorbike over here there's a guy out the window there there's a couple guys inside the car with deadpool deadpool's about to sit his butt down on someone's face you know not intentionally i'm sure and there's bullets everywhere and there's smoke from the gun being fired and there's blood and there's just a bunch of different beautiful in movement frozen elements but not only that we're listening to the song just call me angel in the morning which doesn't make any sense (laughs) it's super fun this is also the first thing we see we don't see anything prior to this it's kind of one of those here's where i am and we're gonna go backwards and meet back in the middle and then the title cards sure some people get mentioned by name but then they also have frivolous ones going around and making fun just like who deadpool is like a hot chick a british villain a CGI character and it just it doesn't stop and you know Deadpool is all about breaking the which wall third fourth fifth tenth wall no the fourth all of them. the fourth all wall. the walls <laughs> it's the fourth wall <laughs> okay and so you have like a magazine that says Ryan Reynolds sexiest man and you have all these other things that are there too so lots of fun with that title sequence i think i might have to watch that movie tonight yeah, when I was talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail and how they mess with the opening title sequence, this was the first movie that came to mind that has seems to have done that uh, similarly yeah. since. I'm not sure if there's very many examples that have goofed on the opening titles like Deadpool or Holy Grail have. So that's an excellent pick. My third favorite opening title sequence is another animated one. This one's from 1989. It is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, available on HBO Max. Uh, this one's another one that has always stuck with me. I love it. I love. It has a great song uh, to it. I'm trying to remember the name of the song off the top of my head. And Christmas Vacation? Oh, yeah. Christmas Vacation. Duh. Kind of obvious, isn't it? By Paul McCartney? No, it's no? not. It's, it's, a, it's a female singer. It's oh, a female singer. Okay. But it's basically following Santa trying to deliver gifts in a particular home and one mishap happens after another you know the chimney might come apart or you know the lights might accidentally electrocute him it's it's just a very silly cartoon opening title sequence with a lovely (laughs) song uh i've just always loved both things and it definitely gets you in the mood for the movie my favorite national lampoons vacation movie i think it's i i I know a lot of people love the first but i do think this is the best one and and it certainly has the best opening title sequence the most memorable one so i love national lampoons christmas vacations opening title sequence it's my third favorite one you can check it out on hbo max i believe my top three are all on hbo max so here we go shanna what is your second favorite opening title sequence So my number two is from 1989. It's near and dear to my heart. I've loved watching it since I was was a kid. It's on Disney Plus. It's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. This is about a scientist father trying to invent a shrinking machine. And in, in a very responsible way, he has good intentions around it. But he gets upset one day. Something happens because it's not working and it works. So our opening, and the children get shrunk. And now the father has to try and find them mm-hmm. in a, what seems like a whole country, just their backyard. So I love this title 
opening title sequence because James Horner does the music and who doesn't love James Horner? He's amazing. And what they do here is you, you think you're looking at this animated sequence, you think at first that these kids are normal size, but then all of a sudden there's this ginormous vacuum and then they're running on a record because they're on a record player. And then all of a sudden who does what with the movie is written with a pencil and the the kids are trying to run away from it. And then they see a fly which is super gross because the eye has eyes within the eyes and it's so weird. And oh, they also get into a toaster and all the 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 um the coils are credits and they eventually end up in an envelope and you see them on this on this plastic trying to push through the plastic window on the envelope there's even a moment where somehow the kids get on the dog's fur and the dog thinks it's a flea so you see these teeth going trying to get the kids so the little sound effects the movements uh, the fun that they're having with this is just i i always thought that i was going to watch a different movie because i thought i was going to watch an animated version and then when it would turn to live action i'd always be confused as a smaller kiddo (laughs) okay (laughs) but yeah that's honey i shrank the kids on disney plus all right my second favorite opening title sequence is from 1999 and all honestly you could catch me on a different day and i could say this is my favorite but it is austin powers the spy who shagged me now the three movies each had very silly opening title sequences and i feel like they kind of one-upped each other with each film it, you know, and I love the opening title sequence of Gold Member. It's, you know, I love like half of that movie, and that's one of the elements I love about that movie. But I, I love the opening title sequence of The Spy Who Shagged Me the most. It is so silly. It does this constant gag where Austin Powers is wandering around a hotel completely naked because he's realized, for reasons I won't explain, he is single and free to love. <laughs> And so he's going to let it all hang out, and he does. But we don't see that. What we see instead is his Wayne being covered by either a credit or a pinwheel or a sausage or a uh, anything that gets buttoned into ice cream. Yeah. You know, and then it has this Busby Berkeley swimming pool sequence, and <laughs> it's just hilarious. It, it just is absolutely relishing and delighting in its silliness and it's one of the funniest opening title sequences i have ever seen of all the comedy opening title sequences on this list it is the funniest and i i love it austin powers the spy who shagged me from 1999 available on hbo max all right my number one of all time you know i like to say that i don't commit myself but i think this is always going to be number one just because of how perfect it is uh it's from 2009 it's available on hulu yay hulu movie oh it is not not hbo max apparently not that's shocking because you know what i'm talking about i do know all right (laughs) it's always nice when we know what's going to be our our lovers number one so it is watchmen I'll quickly read the description. This is based on a graphic novel. In 1985, where former superheroes exist, the murder of a colleague sends active vigilante Rorschach into his own sprawling investigation, uncovering something that could completely change the course of history as we know it. This is directed by Zack Snyder. 
it's the opening title sequence. Let me try and explain what's happening here. We're seeing events that somewhat happened in America and some of them are sometimes tweaked a little bit and some of them aren't. And amongst all of this, it's like, well, what would it be like if the super, if we had superheroes and they were working with the government and with the community, what would that look like? And if you won a war and superheroes helped you win that war, what would it look like for them? And so you see iconic imagery being recreated, but with superheroes instead. So you see one of the superheroes shaking JFK's hand. You see the photo of World War II, World War II ending of the sailor kissing the nurse in New York. Instead of that, you see a superhero woman kissing a nurse in New York. And it's just brilliant how things get tweaked. It's a beautiful photo technique that's happening because it was kind of one of those first introductions to here's a photo, but we're going to actually, we're making it look like a photo, but actually there's going to be elements that are still moving like smoke or gunpowder or petals or blood after someone got punched. It's quite lovely. It quickly also establishes the history of superheroes because the superheroes we're going to follow in the movie are the next generation. So they're quickly showing you what the first generation was like yeah. and and the title opening title sequence ends with, well, here's the new guys. Yeah. And and now we start the movie. Yeah, the Minutemen and the Watchmen. That, that's excellent and almost made my list as well. Definitely one of my absolute favorites very good love very good my favorite opening title sequence do you have any guess what it might be you know it's really hard because i'm looking at your list and i'm seeing quite the variety and i'm not seeing a pattern of any kind and i am a little worried that i'm not going to get it i know it's not going to be watchmen because i've just mentioned that it's not going to be star wars is it no, although I, I did forget about that, and that is a really mm. good pick, even though technically it is just a title. Yeah, I feel like there's others that do more with the opening title sequence, so that's why that didn't make my list. Uh, Jeepers, it's, is it Alien or Aliens? Nope, or? nope. Hmm, what is it? So, as I said, Austin Powers 2 could take this slot, depending on the day, but I'm going with right now... 1989's Batman. Oh, oh, really? That's your number one? From Available wow. on HBO Max. So this is the Tim Burton Batman, his first of two films. And this is the first film to have the iconic Batman theme mm. by Danny Elfman. And what it does is the camera is moving through something. It is some sort of concrete something. <laughs> and it, it slowly reveals itself to be the Batman logo that we are looking at in, ex in extreme close-up and moving around. With this, again, like how important is it to have a great song mm. in an opening title sequence? And it actually is going through credits it's not just a title only or anything abstract it's showing you the credits of the casting crew while it's going through this whole this concrete symbol and this thing like in 1989 people like went nuts with this opening title sequence this movie in general it was a true phenomenon unlike anything we have seen in recent history so uh you know 
it's a favorite of mine. It's always been a favorite of mine. It's iconic. It's cool. It's one of the coolest opening title sequences <laughs> ever I've ever seen. So again, that's Batman from 1989, available on HBO Max. So those are our 12 favorite opening title sequences. Shanna, given the nature of, of how difficult this was, was there anything else you wanted to give quick shout outs to that you considered that didn't quite make your list? Well, I definitely considered Terminator 2. I mean, who doesn't love watching the world burn? You know, <laughs> all these different elements, like whether it was a building or a carousel horse or whatever was on fire. And it was super interesting. I have to rewatch that because I didn't remember that that was. I just remember, oh. I just remember the T-800, the chrome T-800 and its eyes staring at the screen with fire in the background. Well, it might end like that. I had started watching the T2 opening title sequence, and then I remembered, oh, yeah, this is untouchable, so I have to... <laughs> it's one of you your know, 12 favorite movies of all I'm time. I'm just going to close it because it's just going to upset me. So it might end like that, but I know like a play structure is on fire mm. and stuff like that, but it's not only on fire. Everything around it is on fire, and right. like there's just so much fire. So <laughs> anyway, anything else really quickly? I love the untouchables. They have a really great... Um, play with text mission impossible is pretty good my favorite one is number three witches is good but very jarring you know it's one of those aerial we're gonna fly over it's very sped up too. yeah and then panic room is really good because it kind of reminds me of my man godfrey but modernized because they're kind of pushing these texts and uh three-dimensional shape of the texts into the buildings yeah so it's really good and then who else have we got here uh, Adventures in Babysitting, Dawn of the Dead. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is great because they start with the life of chocolate. So Charlie and Chocolate um, Factory by Tim Burton or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate oh, Factory? Oh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. So it's really good. They start with the cocoa bean. They grind it up. You've got the cocoa paste. And then they have melted chocolate after they add the sugar. So they're not hiding anything from you. They're like, look at this cool process. And they're going through all the different techniques that chocolate bars will go through, whether it's chocolate drops. They basically are showing you Kit Kats essentially and yeah it's really great and men in black is cool all the president's men is okay super bad is sweet yeah super bad's a good one yeah i almost thought about that one girl with the dragon tattoo is really good because it's black on black and they're showing you elements of all three story all three stories that's the david fincher one for mm -hmm. a point of clarity not the original film and do the right thing is really good too because you know they're starting with oh man totally blanking out the person who plays Montoya Ro Rosie Perez Rosie Perez dancing in different uh, outfits different backgrounds and you just feel the heat coming off of her the fight the know? power by public yeah. enemy Very super famous. good yeah yeah so first of all Watchmen Deadpool Honey I Shark the Kids Catch Me If You Can and The Player all almost on my list absolute favorites of mine I love those as well seven almost made my list the david fincher 1995 mm. film where you see the journals uh, of the serial killer john doe being put together with the nine inch nails sawn closer except without the vocals uh it's it's kind of unsettling 500 days of summer was my one pick uh, in my 12 favorite movies of all time i couldn't choose that has a really great montage of the two leads growing up uh, via like super eight uh, footage and stuff 
Uh, 127 Hours has a very kinetic, uh, excellent opening title sequence that establishes the carelessness of uh, um, Aaron Ralston in the beginning, getting ready to go on his trip. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is really fun, really up there for me as well. Almost famous. I've always really loved. It's just Cameron Crowe writing on a sketch pad the cast and then erasing it. I've always really loved that. It's very quiet, very uh, very minimalist score behind it. Ghost in the Shell, opposite of minimalist score. <laughs> you know, it's just the creation of a cyborg, the main character cyborg, and um, you have this ah kind of uh, score going on, mm. a very eerie, unforgettable score uh, during the process of this, and you have this very matrixy, pre-matrix, matrixy digital uh, mm-hmm. text uh, appearing. Some coding. Yes, that's very very cool. I love that very much. Of all the Saul Bass opening title sequences, I felt he really needed to be referenced. I really thought you were going to have Psycho on your list. Uh, You know, not my favorite text-based opening title sequence. I I really thought one of us was going to represent him here. Uh, I I just, Vertigo was uh, my favorite of all of his opening title sequences. Didn't quite make my list. Uh, Godzilla is a great pick. Zombieland messes with the credits, mm. which is really kind of cool as characters are crashing through the credits as they're trying to escape or be are being attacked by zombies. Halloween, John Carpenter's film with the iconic score, just Creeps a pumpkin. All it is is a pumpkin. All it's it is is a, a jack-o'-lantern. Uh, with the score playing and it slowly creeps closer and closer to that jack-o'-lantern. That's ex- exceptional minimalist stuff. Do the right thing is really good. Mannequin's another animated opening title sequence i always really loved not one that many people are aware of i love girl uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo when we rewatched that first time i've seen that in 10 years that was a really great one men in black pretty good one with a, a following the life of a mosquito uh, is it a dragonfly or a mosquito Something, um, one or the other. it's it's a bug it's a bug. i don't think it matters yeah. um it just doesn't hold up very well because of its cgi aging you mentioned mission impossible 3 for me it's ghost protocol that i love ah, the most yeah. i think that's the one where it says light the fuse and, and mm-hmm. it goes off that's a really great one x-men days of future past of all the x-men opening title sequences that's the one i love because it's instead of the dna of a mutant you see the inner workings of a sentinel this yes. time that was a really good turn it on its so head good. of what you, what's been established in that franchise love that fargo is good untouchables is good i really want to rewatch the good the bad and the ugly opening title sequence forgot about that one but that's notable and super bad as well and fiddler on the roof very simple mm. but it, that image of the fiddler literally on the roof <laughs> playing his song while the credits are going has always stuck in my mind Mm. as well so those are our favorites what are your favorite opening title sequences have we mentioned any of yours let us know email us at the gibson review at gmail.com that is going to do it for this episode of the movie lovers before we talk about the next episode shanna let's tell people where they can find us online you can find me at shanna paxton photography with underscores in between each of those on instagram and on Flickchart, you can find me at Spellbinding A. Uh, TheGibsonReview.com. Uh, find past episodes of The Movie Lovers on there. Also, look for the blog post that kind of that has each of these opening title sequences and more embedded in there. So you can see them for yourself. And also go to social media on Facebook slash The Gibson Review and Instagram. The Gibson 99 I do bracket polls at the Instagram account 
We did most recently a series of sequels and the uh, here's the results. We did a bunch of mini polls and then one big poll for your favorite sequels. Here's what we got. We got uh, favorite action sequel was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Favorite animated sequel, Toy Story 2. Favorite comedy sequel, 22 Jump Street. Favorite comic book movie sequel, The Dark Knight. Favorite MCU sequel, Avengers Endgame. Favorite horror sequel, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Favorite sci-fi and fantasy sequel, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And your favorite sequel of all time was not Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Was not Man Max, Fury Road. It was The Dark Knight, which may or may not be included in future polls because it is also your favorite DC movie. Favorite of uh, your favorites from 2020. Favorite 2008 movie. Favorite comic book movie. Favorite comic book movie sequel. Favorite sequel of all time. So you could see what kind of fun we have over at the Instagram, the Gibson 99. We're going to do other polls soon. Check that out there. As for the next episode, we will be reviewing the long anticipated Denny Villeneuve's Dune. And Film Faves will be our favorite scores. I'm so nervous. I don't want to commit. <laughs> That'll be probably a big episode. So, I mean, this is a this this is an event coming up here. So, look for that on Tuesday, October 26th. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.